Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the Dishcast. This is uh, one I've been so looking forward to, one of my favorite and most esteemed public intellectuals. We are so happy to have on the Dishcast, uh, Cornell West. I don't think he really needs introduction. I first met, well, maybe we should talk about where we first met. I met Cornell when I was doing a piece when I was a, basically a baby on, was a Union Theological Seminary. I did a piece about about divinity schools in America. And I remember that Michael Kinsley put it on the cover with the headline, she's back, God comes back to divinity school. (laughs) And I had a lot of fun and was also very interested in in everything that you were doing. But uh, Cornell, thank you so much for coming and welcome to the Dishcast. Well, my brother's always a joy to be in conversation with you. I think that's almost 34 years ago, man. I know. I know it's 34 years. We are blessed to still be here and in our right minds at least five days a week. I know you're in your right mind seven, but I'm I'm holding out for five days a week, right? Don't we doesn't it feel I mean, I don't feel that different from those days. Um and you don't your spirit seems to be very similar through all the years. It's almost as if uh, sometimes I wonder if this 30 years happened or <laughs> whether I'm still sitting here with the same sensibility and feelings, right? <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. I mean, I think that, you know, you've been blessed with a forever young sensibility. And I have a similar one too, in terms of being able to be in the moment, be thankful for the moment but also be mindful of, you know, the loved ones we lost. You know, we look around and you see the loved ones are no longer longer here. That will let you know that time is real. That will let you know that these last 34 years have been as as real as a heart attack. You just given, you said five eulogies in the last five days or last week. That must be rough. Well, I tell you, man, you know, when you got talent figures like Bob Moses, my dear brother, and, uh, Stanley Aronowitz and Albert Roberto, Donald Shriver, the president of the seminary at the time that you and I met in the 80s. And then my dear brother, Glenn Ford, revolutionary intellectual, black journalist. It hit hard in mom just a few months ago, you know, so the whole sense of mortality, fleshified, concretized, forced to confront in such a raw, raw manner. My brother, Albert Roberto, he's black. Uh, religious scholar, but he was a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. So I've never been in Russian Orthodox liturgy for the dead. Oh, brother. Powerful. Oh, you know, the Vespers, Rachmaninoff, the voices, the body lays there and you can see it the whole time and you kiss parts of the body. It, it's heavy, man. I'm telling wow. you. The, the body, the body is right there in front of you? Body right there. Uh, we Protestants, of course, have always kept a distance. And, you know, the Catholics, you all are much more candid about it than we are. But the Russians, man, that's what those Dostoevsky <laughs> and Tolstoy and Chekhov and Leskov and Turgenev, that's where they come from. And this, this is a raw engagement with the real, concrete, lived experience of a corpse. Right. Have um, you ever been intrigued by orthodoxy yourself, by... Eastern Orthodoxy is a, a part of your oh, faith? Or? Oh, very much so. Very tell, me, tell me about that. What is it that, 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 that draws you to that tradition? Yeah, I think that so much of the Russian Orthodoxy genius has to do with wrestling with that long Saturday between the, the crucifixion of, 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 of Jesus on Friday and the surprise by joy Easter moment not yet appearing. 
So that long Saturday, God is really dead. It almost makes me look like a Boy Scout. You know, this is not gay science section 125 and nice little cocktail conversations about the death of God. But this is the concrete, fleshified God in history who has been crucified by the most powerful forces of the world, the Roman Empire of that day. It has a level of concreticity and a level of intensity that goes far beyond nice little postmodernist moves in an epistemic puzzle, you see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh- that was touche on that one. I that day, I, I obviously in Catholicism, we strip the church of everything. You yes, there yeah. is nothing left, and the light, the the little light on that's always there, is temporarily extinguished. I remember, and of course, the vigil. You come into this darkness, and you bring fire from outside into the church and light it up. Uh, it is Ooh. incredibly powerful, and it's powerful yeah. because it's not up here, right? It's not in your brain. It's in your body. That's it's corporeal. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you take uh, James Baldwin's down at the cross, the second section of the fire next time, mm-hmm. and you ground it in Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew's Passion, mm-hmm. 27, where you actually are down at the cross. But this cross is not an abstraction, it's not a symbol, it's not a metaphor. It is, in fact, a body that has been thoroughly crucified, decimated, humiliated, debased, and despised. And yet it is representing something sublime. It's representing something that goes far beyond simply that moment of desiccation. And uh, you can hear it in Bach's music, you can see it in Baldwin's. You can feel it in Baldwin's uh, his essays, and it's very much about that long Saturday. I mean, George Stanner, you know, wrote a whole book on this long Saturday. He's a secular brother, but he's very attuned, given his own profound Jewish sensibility to what it means to have the despair and the despondency become concretized with wounds and bodies, scars in bodies, and yet still attempts to sustain some kind of resilience. Yeah, this aspect of Christianity, it's, uh, and certainly of Catholicism, this tangibility of suffering. Like it, it's not an abstract, it's not an abstract <laughs> cross. There is a human being on it. You can, and, and that Thomas touching the wound, yes. the resurrected Jesus, this is a, a very corporeal, tangible thing. And of course, I, and so when you, in life, just talk about this a little bit, when you come across the tortured or racked human body you know where you are when i nursed so many of my friends and mm-hmm. a friend his body just destroyed by a virus and mm-hmm. tormented by various infections so he was a skeleton he was wounded he was covered in lesions he couldn't be touched he was so had so much neuropathy he couldn't breathe but you could see i could i instantly had the vocabulary mental and spiritual to understand what was going on and why this was why in fact there was something quite extraordinary about this experience and that he but then i have the faith that he will has risen again that he is still alive do you do you that's still have that faith that's the christian promise brother it's a mystery it's a wonder t.s Eliot is right ours is in the trying the rest is not our business it doesn't make any sense to the lens of the world but when you actually look at, let's say, the greatest Christian poet I, I would be Dante. It you can't get more corporeal, material, concrete 
than Dante in, in, in both Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso. The greatest Christian novelist would be Dostoevsky. Mm. The greatest Christian American novelist would be Toni Morrison. I mean, all of them have suffering, misery, wounds, scars, bruises, as concrete as you can get incarnational, sacramental in terms of its understanding of what it is to be part of the human condition. So it's never these isolated individuals like we Protestants, you know, Martin Luther's taking on the whole Roman, Roman Empire all by himself. Here I stand. Okay, Brother Martin. Okay, we appreciate that, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, no. You, I mean, the Catholics and, and on the Russian side, as well as the Roman side, understand the incarnation and the sacramental character of being human is always connected with others. It's always connected with community. It's connected with Eucharist. It's connected with re- remembrance. It's connected with reverence. It's connected with, with, with resilience. And, you know, and, and in that sense, you know, we Protestants have much to learn. And the other writer I think of that kind of is Flannery O'Connor. Uh, yes, another yes. Where, where the, actual, <laughs> the, the absurdity and awfulness of human being is sort of tangible in her. Oh, yes. It's almost as if people, the Christians, we are convinced of another life, but 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 for the Catholic and Orthodox particularly, I mean, obviously, I think maybe the Black Baptist Church, I mean, African-American Christianity, I would say is more in touch with that corporality than white Protestantism. Am, am I right? Am I... I think, I think, generally speaking, it's always hard to generalize, as you know, none of these traditions are homogeneous, monolithic. No. But you're absolutely right. But you see, my own Black Baptist tradition, though, comes through a certain African sensibility that has to do with body, that has to do with community tied to corporeality, community tied to the bodily. So that someone like Dante or Cervantes or a, uh, a Dostoevsky as Christian artists, that they're, they're, they're coming at it through their own distinctive national tradition. Whereas the Black Baptists, you know, we've got the African connection, the kinetic orality, the passionate physicality, the sense of trying to sustain ourselves as much through our sense of control over our space and time with body, especially given the fact we had no right to land, no territory, no rights, no liberties for the most part. So where will self-determination come through? Through voice, body. And then be together, the ring shout, you holding together, hands together, engaged in acts against the law, against the law for black people to worship God without white supervision. We had to steal away at night, raise our voices, use our bodies as ways of sustaining ourselves, our meaning, our value, our love for each other. And that, that African backdrop in which you had the, the almost a primacy of giving oneself by means of not just the cerebral, but also the bodily, also the visceral. Which African traditions are you thinking of? These are traditions that just, 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 just brought Af- with them? Absolutely, just the West African tradition that you get, because these are hybrid cultures, so it's hard right, right, right. to come up with a category label just for one, but, but absolutely. No, but keep in mind, they've been completely transformed and transmogrified by the new world experience. Right, right, of course. Mississippi and Texas and Georgia, Alabama and so forth. It's going to look different than what you saw among the dignified, magnificent Africans on the West Coast of the continent. But the continuities will be there as well as some discontinuities. But it will be Americanized. There is no doubt about it. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is a deeply uh, 
American experience. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and all American experiences are hybrids. Eh? You know, the Irish yes. are going to be very different in Dublin when you get to Boston, but the continuities are there. Oh. You're telling me. I mean, there's one. Also, <laughs> you go from Rome to Dublin, you will have a completely different understanding of what what Christianity is. I was brought up in the extremely mystical, but also very strict Irish Catholicism of my grandmother. But that too is always what appealed to me and why I found it very hard to say I'd lost faith or to, or it, it, because for me, it was as a child, I think I was, I mean, I feel very blessed to have had a very Christian upbringing. And not everybody says that. Certainly not every gay person says that. Right, and right, uh, right. But I'm not talking about the gay. I'm talking about the first 10 years of my life when I believed everything in, in every form and in which I grew up in the Catholicism that I was given was embedded in nature, in the trees and forests and fields of where I grew up. Like in, in May, we would bring boughs of blossom and fill the church with blossom in honor of Our Lady in a procession that had happened to those May processions had gone through back to the Middle Ages. Oh, and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I'm, I'm sure you know of the scholarship that has uh, that fascinated me uh, of how, in fact, it's now understood that, that those kind of traditions in English Catholicism, however corrupt the church had become institutionally, were very popular and very vibrant until the Reformation when they had to be really brutally suppressed. And the, the, this idea that Catholicism was completely decrepit and about to fall is not true. On a popular level, it was still very strong and very, and especially around Our Lady, you know, this female figure that enters that enters the figure, enters the picture rather. Now, um, I was just at the uh, church in Notre Dame, just two blocks away. I, I live on 110th Street right, right in, in Harlem. And we got the church in Notre Dame. Beautiful, beautiful sculpture of Our Lady. With the light over and the and the, the beautiful covering, and the power of it, my brother. I mean, here I am, a Holy Ghost Baptist left wing, in the Notre Dame Church, feeling that spirit. You know, it's like, good God Almighty, it cannot be denied. You know, you could put Huxley and Darwin in there; they're gonna feel something. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they they sure. But tell me, because this has always interested me about you. Help me help me understand how your Christianity informs your politics, because the relationship between religion and politics can be a very complicated one. It doesn't translate easily. It's often you can share the same Christian faith and come to different political conclusions. Oh, yeah. But for you, the Christianity seemed to lead to a, a a real commitment to social. Revolution is too strong, is it for you? I, I don't know. I find it hard to put you in the liberal slash leftist position. You seem to be an enthusiastic for race theory, but you're also, for example, a, a big defender of the humanities, a big defender of liberal exchange of ideas. Tell Absolutely. me how Christianity informs all that. That's what I'm really interested. In. How did yeah. you? How does? How did you go from faith? Assuming you did, I mean, I don't know mm. the full details of your religious faith, and maybe you could talk about that. But how did? It, become so become expressed in the politics that you have had yeah no it's a wonderful question oh brother i appreciate that well you see i am a product of the west family irene and clifton the highest honor i've ever had was being the second son of them they were love warriors at the highest level all members of silo baptist church on the chocolate side of sacramento reverend peak 
Reverend Willard P. Cook. He was a real pastor, not a CEO. He loved the people. He was not interested in money. He was in love with, with a Palestinian Jew named Jesus, and you could feel it. It's almost like the Bel Shemtov in the Judaic tradition, just overflowing with a love, overflowing with a genuine compassion. And I, that's what I experienced. Somebody like James Baldwin said, he found hatred in the black church. I found love. He got it right for his view. I found the exact opposite. But I'm very Augustinian. I've always been Augustinian. I'll die Augustinian. What I mean by that is not just North African, not just Catholic, but the insights that he has in terms of the history of the species being the history of hatred and fear and envy and resentment and domination and subjugation. And to bear witness as a Christian is to try to create moments of disruption of that history. You see, when I was growing up, we were told weekly, if the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. And heaven are those moments of interruption, of eruption, of kairos. And kairos, as you know, moments of the deep meaning and significance where a love that is impinging a kingdom that is intervening in space and time into what Samuel Beckett, our great Irish genius brother, called the mess. To be human in space and time is be in the mess. I call it the funk coming out of James Brown's tradition, but it's the same point that we're in history with all of these fears and insecurities and anxieties. What kind of heaven are we leaving behind? So it personally, it could be a grin, it could be a touch in a relation, it could be an opening of heart. Well, in society, it's an attempt to have a love ethic that translates into a concern about each person being made in the image and likeness of God, and therefore having a dignity across politics, across gender, race, national identity. That's what it is to be a human being, but we didn't have choices. We can choose to be gangsters like you know, the tyrants and so forth. We can choose to be lukewarm or we can choose to be on fire. Now, a follower of Jesus is somebody who is on fire with a love that makes no sense in through the lens of the world because you're looking at the world through the lens of a cross. And that cross is about this God who was who suffered, was despised, humiliated, crucified by giving everything one he was, which is kenosis this emptying of oneself to create this disruption, this interruption. And that's what the cross as interruption, as this catastrophic eruption in a world overwhelmed by suffering and misery and hatred and greed and so forth. And that same battle that we talk about in history takes place on the souls of the battlefields of each and every one of us, the greed right. in us, the hatred in us, the envy in us, the resentment in us and the ways in which we've internalized the homophobia, the white supremacist sensibility, imperialist sensibilities, thinking American life has more value than a life in Ethiopia, Guatemala, Somalia with the drones. You know, Brother Robbie and I just did the piece on drones, yes, two days ago. And, and, Bobby and George. Yeah, Brother Robbie George. We traveled the country together, conservative, Republican brother. We, we come together in terms of things we agree with, we disagree and fight over a whole host of things, but he's my very deep brother and, and, and I am his very deep brother. So it, it, that's my own. Well, let me, let, me, let me come back at you on that with Augustine. Absolutely. Because, Absolutely. Uh, Augustine isn't, a, I mean, my mentor, Oakshot, actually called 
Augustine, the most remarkable man who ever lived. Just that there was something about his ability to pierce the rea- the reality of our fallen humanity that was. And we should mention Brother Peter Brown's magisterial book from 1967. Another Irish brother. Peter Brown's work on the early church is simply careless. And it is just required reading in 2021. Let's just put it that way, but I didn't mean to interrupt. No, but but the thing that you also see in Augustine is the sense that we're helpless without God and that we are doomed to repeat these hurts and these wounds and inflict them on each other. And that, in fact, we will not transcend this in this world. The the, the city of God is not available to us. And there are Augustinian traditions which emphasize uh, a sort of conservative politics that accepts that the world is so broken, you just have to do triage in a way and leave the space open for people to find salvation. But... The attempt to bring that about through politics is is not some, but you, but you differ from that, as I understand it, and you actually think that no, you're not quite as depressed about human ability to better ourselves than Augustine was. Or am I miss? You have a different reading no, of Augustine. No, I think you're right about that. But one of the points that Brother Peter Brown does highlight is the very thick conception of grace that's operating in Augustine. Yes, Luther's going to pick up on this. I think the greatest of all of the early modern Christian thinkers, Pascal, with his Jansenism, was going to pick up on this. And grace is tied to agency. Grace is tied to our abilities to be able to be resilient. Now, it's not tied to our abilities to create paradise or utopia or, or have the kingdom of God in space and time. But that kingdom of God is realized to the degree to which we have this grace available to us. And this grace that's available to us comes in the form of our willingness to die. That's what baptism is all about, right? It's a form of death. An old self dies for a new self to emerge, but that's true for love. When you fall in love, when I fall in love, an old self dies and a new self emerges tied to another self. And that process of learning how to die in order to learn how to live that the whole process of knowing that you die daily, which is what you know Paul himself says uh, in, 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 in 1 Corinthians, that you have to die daily in order to be reborn daily. And yet in being reborn, you know that the persistent old self is still there. That's Augustine in his confessions. After the conversion, that's like the end of Chekhov's short story, the lady and the lapdog, right? You got a relationship. The problems are just beginning. Right. The challenges are just beginning, but the joy is there. You don't want to snuff out the joy. And the grace that you get in Augustine is tied to a joy because he's very Pauline. He's pulling on Paul himself, our Jewish brother, who plays such an important role in really conceiving of the, the Christian project in its dominant forms. And was, so, was, in some ways, can you imagine a Christianity without Paul? No. No. <laughs> No, but no. That, that begs the question, well, just, I can't use that, that suggests <laughs> the question of Jesus's role in all of this, because Jesus obviously wasn't preaching a theology. He wasn't preaching, even, well, I guess he was preaching an eschatology, right? And he did believe the end of the world was coming. What I want to get, everything you're saying there. One, one, one quick word about Jesus is very important. Yeah. See, Jesus, like Socrates, is a topos, which is to say he is unsubsumable. He can never be fully understood through any lens, any label, any category. And that's very important. 
because it means, and as you said, it, it's polysemic. It's going to be subject to a whole host of different interpretations. So what, what comes through, and this is what you get in somebody like a Bonhoeffer, who is very Lutheran, very Augustinian, but it is a Jesus who is for others, a Jesus who is in solidarity with the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed and the suffering, no matter who they are. So that love is not reducible to any theology, ideology, system, doctrine, what have you. And that's why the Augustine's ecclesiology, his conception of the church is so thick. He thinks that the church is the place. Bonhoeffer has a, a high conception of the church too. I'm a Baptist. My conception of the church is very weak, rather. Tell me what you mean by thickness. The bones of Peter who denied Jesus three times. So you got to have low expectations of the very foundations of that church. And yet it still has a role to play. And so let me respond to that by saying I just sat, I've just read today, uh, yesterday actually, that the report in France on the abuse of possibly two to 300,000 children over the last. Oh, there, brother. Oh, Jesus. How do I, and this has been a huge issue for me, how do I stay there? It is what I was born into. It is the former Christianity I've loved. But to participate in this, uh, now Francis gives me a great deal of hope, but my own parish was led by McCarrick and Worrell. You know, I was betrayed personally by these people. and. Right. And then to be a gay man and to have them deflect all this to say it's because of homosexuals. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that's, an, that's just an added sort of blow. And I'm hanging in, but I want my confidence in the confessionary. I, I don't know what the moral thing for me to do is. Leaving doesn't help, particularly. Staying can be absolutely, you feel almost complicit in this evil. But this institution is lasted 2,000 years. I mean, it's, is, is it dying? Is it going to collapse? Should it collapse? Well, these, these are powerful questions, man. But I would just say, you know, as fellow Christian brothers, that we should never be surprised by evil, whatever form it takes. Mm-hmm. Be it in the church, mosque, synagogue, temple, be it in government, be it in the economy, as human beings. And uh, that doesn't mean that we don't have righteous indignation. It doesn't mean we don't raise our voices to talk about the barbarities, the atrocities, uh, the crimes against humanity. But every institution is shot through with these kinds of both potentialities and sometimes actuality. And there's nowhere to go. You say, well, you leave the church, or where do you go? You're going to go to a political party that's tied to drones. You're going to a political party that's got neo-fascism. You're going to go to a, a university that claims to be a temple of learning, but is shot through with all of its human failings and flaws and so forth. There's really no escape. I tell that my students that all the time. They say there's no escape. And not to decide is to decide. The question is to raise one's voice in the context in which you find yourself and choose to be and say, this is barbaric. You can say that in the church context. You can be secular and say it from outside. But even when they're secular and saying it from outside, they have affiliations to the institutions that are shot through with forms of barbarism too. It, but your no view problem. and the view of Augustine would be, this is our permanent condition as humans on earth. Is that, is that not correct? So there, and, there and, is... and from that, that deep ontological level of fears, insecurities, and anxiety that's creatures on the way to bodily extinction. 
Yes, but historically, it doesn't still, it doesn't mean we can't make breakthroughs. We can still fight for truth and goodness and beauty and have effects. But we I've lived, I've lived it. Cornell, I'm Brother Cornell. I've lived it as a gay man. I, from when I first made arguments about this to now, we have seen an opening of hearts in this country that was really profound. And it worked. Uh, and I, I've sort of tried to think about it because it's often a question, why did this do? Why did this work in a way that other civil rights movement haven't had as much success as swiftly as this? And in thinking about that, I do think that a lot of it was individual humans talking to another human being, often in the family, coming out, talking to your mother and father. This is a very intimate and vulnerable making. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it, it is a form of grace that, and certainly in my case with my own father, it was a moment of what I would understand as extraordinary grace that came in and allowed him to accept me fully and empathize fully. Yeah, you don't have to a lifetime that I had never believed that could be possible instantly. That's uh, beautiful. And but I the historical timing of it too, my brother, that the first uh, gay brothers and lesbians, sisters and non-binary and others, that the particular moment in which that social movement began to become salient was a moment of cultural openness because you had, in the United States, you, you had the black movement in place. You had feminist movements in place. You had a variety of different critiques of persons who were so dogmatic, they were blind and callous and, and indifferent toward people who were suffering. And so when, when, when 69 is, is what when the, was the Stonewall? Stonewall 69, yeah. The, the rights, gay rights movement goes back to the 20s and 30s and was prominent also in the 50s in a different form. But the, right, but the explosion. Yeah. You know, the social movement itself, we can go back to Oscar Wilde, we can go back, but the explosion itself takes place at a moment when in especially the West, we have to make some regional distinctions, but yeah. especially in Westernized transatlantic societies, there was just this cultural upheaval taking place. And but that the makes the difference. Yeah, it did. But the paradox is that for, the, for at least a decade and a half after that, nothing much moved legislatively, that, that we had a very weird experience, which is the AIDS, this unbelievable yeah. catastrophe was in fact the accelerant and the critical reagent, as it were. It was the chemical reagent that exposed gay men as humans, as, as vulnerable, as also everywhere in your family, everywhere you could. The deaths could not be gainsaid. And everyone was like a person, and you realized it's in Kansas, it's in Arkansas, it's in Idaho, it's in California, and it's everywhere. And did you ever go to the quilt? Oh, in fact, I did. You know, it's very interesting. You say that I was just reading Brother Melvin Dixon's uh, collection of poems, Love's Instruments. You know, he was a leading Black gay scholar, distinguished professor, activist who lost his loved one one year before he, well, they died within one year of each other. But he, 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 he was very, what would be the right word? You know, he's at that intersection where black movement on the one hand, but he saw the homophobia in the black movement. He was sensitive, but he also understood, you know, even some of the more traditional perceptions of gays and lesbians, but you would not put up with it. He resisted it in that way. But then the death set in, whew, massive death. And the indifference, 
you know, Reagan's government and so forth, and Reagan's uh, uh, administration and so forth, and the impact of the witnessing that took place, the coming together, and then the transformations of consciousness, perception. But we got to keep this in mind. This is very Augustinian too. We can lose it, brother. We can lose it. It's, these are moments that have to be refought over and over again. It's not as if once you fight them, they're deeply inscribed in stone. No, no. We've seen it with the black movement. We've seen it with the feminist movement. And boy, we can go on and on. Trade union movement. You be breakthroughs. Here come Taft Hartley. You know what I mean? Sure, but we have, but something like a marriage thing is seems, I mean, no, it could be overturned in the future. Right now, it feels pretty solid because the majority of people actually favor it at this point. It's sort of managed to get past that. But, but as, I, as I think, that's just, you know, now, how do you have a marriage? I mean, it's that. No, no. Yeah. I remember yeah. that old, that old yeah. New Yorker cartoon with these two old couple in the old apartment saying, one of the men says, I see the gays want to get married. And the woman says, haven't they suffered enough? And uh, oh, 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 I didn't see that. I didn't see that. Well, there's, there's always there's always Ooh. the actual task of living once you've actually gotten these gains is to live them. And how do you? That's another challenge entirely. Um, oh, you, you you got Bergman just waiting for it. It was film scene from a marriage. <laughs> okay, let's go see scenes from a marriage. In, have you watched the? Version. Have you watched the the, the Netflix? Uh, I think it's Netflix. HBO Max's uh, redo of that. I've they do it scenes for marriage. Yeah, I've no, it's fascinating. It in New York. Have, have you actually followed it? Yeah. I, I, I started to follow it. I, have, to, I, I yeah. have been following it, and it's it's extremely good, but boy, is it agonizing. I mean, boy, do you feel uncomfortable every minute of it. You're in this anxiety of the, the family and the marital stress. It's And there is a lot of that, isn't there, in trying to sustain marriages or families. There's a lot of anger and hatred within families and distrust. Let me, let me just, uh, more generally, everything that you said, for example, about Christian, about suffering, about the dignity of people, individual people, regardless of anything about them. That's right. That's an appealing it should be, and it is, I think, an appealing idea. And yet Christianity, which is the among the most important traditions that emphasize the equal dignity of every human being, regardless of any attribute attached to them, regardless of their success or failure, regardless of their evil or good, you know, they are still made in the image of God. Why, what have, what has happened? We have seen in this century, in this country, a staggering collapse in religious belief and attendance. It seems to be the sharpest drop in, certainly for over a century. Where have we as Christians gone wrong? Why have we lost so many people? What, why is this faith, uh, is it because people just cannot believe in the supernatural anymore? Yeah, you know, I think there's a number of factors, oh brother, that's a very complicated question. Certainly it has something to do with not just secularization, but commodification. So you can't talk about the secular world without talking about the ways in which markets and the ways in which commercializing has set in that flattens the world out so that the spiritual dimensions and even the moral dimensions are more and more just making it as opposed to keeping the faith. Remember that wonderful distinction that James Baldwin makes when he writes about Lorraine Ansbury. She wasn't trying to make it, she was keeping the faith, meaning what? She was trying to be great spiritually. She wasn't trying to be prosperous financially. But the markets have set in and secularization and commodification has become so intertwined that any association with deep spiritual life 
seems to be something that is so alien to the market way of being in the world because religion, not religion, but because religion has its own limitations. But let's just talking about, talk about deep faith tradition. The deep faith tradition are not really religion. I mean, religion has its rites and its rituals and so forth, but they can be just as commodified. They can be just as flat. They can be just as hollow and shallow. And it's corrupt. And corrupt and accommodating to empire, white supremacy, predatory capitalism, homophobia, transphobia, and so forth. But the level of decay, uh, and this is the most frightening thing. This is what Elliot saw. This is what Christopher Dawson saw in their deeply conservative ways. Oakshot saw it, actually, in his own very complicated conservative way that we've talked about before, is the what, what happens when story, drama, history, temporality, phronesis required, practical wisdom in dynamic situations are pushed to the margins, and it becomes a matter of the mechanical, the formula, the quantitative, rather than the qualitative. That's why I resonate with your brother Oakshot. And as you know, you well, know, he makes this lovely contrast between what he calls the programmatic and the dramatic. Yes, uh, and it's I a lovely. That. I love that. Humans, humans commit drama, and you never know what's going to happen next. Programs you know in advance, and his defense of the individual, and serendipity and contingency, too. I think that's the critical. And history and all of its complexity. You know, my old friend Richard Rorty, one of my mentors at Princeton, I know. conversation you mankind, but I remember he and I would talk for hours about Oakshot, and I would tell him, I said, well, you know, in so many ways, it goes back to Hebrew scripture, it really is the dramatic. Eric Albach laid it out in Mimesis in that first chapter on Odysseus' scar. This conception of the, the dramatic, and what is drama? It is conflict emotionally felt and critically reflect, reflected upon, but we know it's inescapable. There's going to be drama all the way down in space and time. And to think that somehow you can escape it with the programmatic and the, narrative, the cheaply utopian as opposed to the costly utopian. Because the costly utopian is just holding on the possibility in light of the dimness. Of it. That's different than planning a program that can be imposed to reshape people so qualitatively that they're a new man as opposed to what they used to be. Right. Uh, that's that's going to be authoritarian and totalitarian. Well, let me pick up on that. It, do you not see aspects of that in some of the critical race theory praxis, at least, that's going on? There is a sense that we can use a formula to make the society just, the sort of, in a way that seems to omit a million different other factors, a million different other components that, that affect these relations. Tell, I mean, you, you wrote... Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, anytime you get to the practitioners of a set of stories and narratives, you're going to get too often a reductionist move that has to do with the kind of elitist imposition of a certain program that's going to change people's consciousness and lo and behold, lead towards some kind of magnificent breakthrough. So that when we talk about critical race theory, well, it's lens. We got a variety of different lens of looking at human, at human history and American history. You look at American history through the lens of the being and sufferings of Africans who were enslaved and Jim Crow. You're going to get some very important insights. You're not going to get the whole history. You're going to get some partial truths. You can look at the lens of American history 
through the working class, lens through the elite. All of them play a role. And in the or, end, or religious freedom as one of the elements yeah, of the country that is into its story. Yeah. Yeah. Indigenous people, I mean, all of these are, are required. And remember that famous line that I always come back to with Henry James writing that letter to Robert Louis Stevenson, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. No theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. And so every theory is going to have this blind spot. Every lens is going to have its splinter in the eye. But the question is, and this is where you have to be jazz-like. You understand this better than the Irish have jazz since Billy at their best. Joyce and the others enact this. That you have to be agile and flexible and fluid and protein in your ability to look through a variety of different lenses in order to see the insights and the truths. And we say truths with an S because it has to be pluralized. Anytime you historicize, you contextualize, you pluralize. And so the 1619 project is going to have splinter in their eyes. There's no doubt about that. They're going to miss some things. Eric Fone was the finest living American historian alive. I mean, living American that we have, right? And he says, 1619 project, very important. One particular way into understanding American history and so forth is practitioners can become very much tied to the mechanical and the formulae. That's the last thing you want to keep it dramatic all the way down. If I were to describe my fundamental objection is the, what I would call the epistemic hubris of it, in, in as much as, yes, there is no question in my mind, obviously, that right. white supremacy is integral to the history of the United Absolutely. States. And there's also no question in me that we have not fully exercised that or examined it enough with we've covered it with too much euphemism metaphor all the rest of it. it was horrifying and its impact is great but it is one truth it is not the only truth it does not define the united states and the project we're engaged in it, it, it is part of it and my concern is simply its reductionism and the fact that everything then becomes this white supremacy versus everybody else and that this is actually the emphasis that 1619 was the true founding. The way that it kept making that claim, then slightly withdrawing it, then making it again, and slightly withdrawing it. But, you know, but it, it's part of the story. It's an integral part of it, absolutely. But it is not the only explanation for American society. And it misses uh, a bunch of other stuff. Oh, no, but you're right about that. But keep in mind, my dear brother, that there's a sense in which it's a response to a dominant myth of origin that also made an essentialist claim. The Mayflower was about this one founding that served as the basis of the whole society. Well, no, that Mother Malcolm said, we didn't land on Mayflower, the rock landed on us. So yeah. if, if, if the dominant myth is going to say it's one thing, then the response, they say one thing. Well, we know it's never one thing. It's right, but I don't think many people today are claiming Mayflower was the, the Mayflower. Well, I mean, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What you were talking about in terms of denying the impact of white supremacist institutions and practices, you see. But see, but, but, yeah, but for me, the other danger, and this takes me back to my own Christian sensibility, is we've got to fight the notion that whiteness is reducible to white supremacy. You see, so that you don't, you can't account for the John Brown, you can't account for the Lydia Maria Childs, you can't account for the Ann Brayton, you can't account for the Rabbi Heschel. These were vanilla brothers and sisters who had a hatred of white supremacy, who chose based on moral, spiritual, and political orientation 
to be in solidarity with their black brothers and sisters. And if we can't capture that truth, then we're really disempowering ourselves in regard to how we're going to try to come to terms with the effects and consequences. Hundreds of thousands of what you call vanilla brothers sacrificed their lives in the Civil War to end this evil. And they're part of that story, too. It's a it's an but that inspiring was a more complicated there because, you know, you got the saving of the union. Right, 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 right. Then you've got some who were there. It's true. You did have some. Right. But you know about the draft riots here in New York. You yeah. Know, we're not going to fight for these black folk, but we'll fight the union. So there's yep. complicated. But I'm talking about these wholesale abolitionist black folk loving white brothers and sisters. And that goes up to this very day. Stanley Aronowitz is one, my, my close partner who just died. I mean, you can't just erase their witness, no. their sacrifice, their service in the light of some formulaic conception of what American history is. You can't right. do it. Because you're because you are removing the dramatic, you you are removing the possibility exactly. of agency yeah. of individuals to choose grace or that's, to choose the right thing. That's exactly right. But see, that's why somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. is no joke. Because he's he is an exemplar of a tradition in which he's gonna stay in contact with the humanity of other folk, no matter who they are, but he's also gonna bear witness. And he ends up being, you know, martyr to what? Not just dying for folk because of their skin pigmentation. He loves black people. Ain't no doubt about that. But the love that he has overflowed to the Irish brothers and the Italians and the indigenous peoples and the wasps and so forth and so on. Because Christianity kid, does that, right? He's a Christian. I mean, that was the core. He's a follower of Jesus, man. He's a follower of Jesus. How do we better pay tribute to Bayard Rustin. You know, uh, you were talking earlier about someone who fought both racism and homophobia at a time when it was so much harder to do, who did all this work only to be hidden by his brothers and sisters, kept away. Uh, including Martin. Including, including Martin. him, yeah. And, and who also married a white guy and stuck with him the rest of his life, a man who's still alive, and was really a kind of old-school liberal in many ways. Giant Bob Moses said the most important person in his life in terms of his shift from Harvard in the philosophy department in the 1950s was Rustin. It was Rustin who sent Bob Moses to Atlanta to be part of the desegregation movement that then opened him to Amzie Moore and the great Fannie Lou Hamer and others in Mississippi. No, but, 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 but Rustin was a giant. And in many ways, a genius. I mean, part of the struggles, and I had these struggles with him at the very end of his life, had to do over issues of empire, as you know. See, over Vietnam, we went at it tooth and nail. And I would come in with a sense of humility. This is the great man who I think is wrong. And I'm going to accent his greatness. I'll never forget his greatness. I am who I am because of the witness of his greatness. And then we have the big fights in the mid-60s and early 60s over Vietnam and American imperial power. But you also, as with Robbie George, whom you disagree with deeply on a whole right. range of issues, you assume good faith on his part, right? And, and there's no reason not to. With oh, absolutely. absolutely. How do we restore that? Because it seems like on social media and in the general discourse, the, the old liberal virtue of assuming that your opponent in an argument is arguing good faith has sort of been lost. And instead, almost instinctively on social media, the goal when you're presented with an argument is to ad hominem the person, either 
to 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 delegitimize them. Either well, you know this person, or you're part of that, or you're white, or you're black, or you're uh, you don't understand this. Instead of saying, well, maybe they don't understand it, but they're coming at this in good faith, and maybe I can. Where? How do we counter that? How do we do that? Because it seems to be gripping us further and further, and it's a cycle that's very hard to break. It is, so, brother, that's part of the spiritual decay. You see, when the levels of distrust cut so deep, and it, when conjoined with the desperation, because there's such massive desperation out there, not just political and economic, but it's social and it's spiritual. And you get desperation and distrust, you get Thrasymachus, man. It's going to be might makes right. It's going to be power dictating morality. It's going to be the textbook version of power. And you say, no, that there's got to be something that allows us to interact with each other in an I, thou relation and language of great Martin Buber. Those are the moments of interruption that, I, that we started this discussion. With. Those are the moments of disruption from power. Now, we're not naive. Of course, we know the structures of power are operating. We're not naive. We know there's asymmetric relations of power in families and workplaces and in our society and so forth. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a sensitivity to each other in terms of how we all are trying to work out our situations biographically, historically, ideologically, religiously. And that's where empathy comes in. When I, if I were to take you to a bunch of Trump voters in, in the middle of the country, like where, how do you understand where they're coming from? Right now, for example, People are literally risking their own lives than take a vaccine, which would seem to concede a point to a regime they distrust and despise. And that's really what it is. It's not a rash. It's, and here's, I mean, let me first say, I, I do understand that the elites got them into a terrible war. Absolutely. The elites screwed up the economy with Economic. the 2008 crash. And I think the elites are now lecturing people in a way that is deeply unhelpful, in a way that's hectoring. In the Clinton campaign, for example, they decided they weren't even going to address these people. They weren't even going to try and talk to them. It was to mobilize their own base. How do we talk to Trump voters? How's, what, where do you think that's coming from? How do we engage it? I mean, we've got to be honest in terms of where we stand, and we've got to try to get inside of their shoe, walk a mile inside of their skin. I'll give you a brief example. When I was in Charlottesville, you know, and we got a lot of sick uh, neo-Nazi brothers and Klan brothers uh, cussing and so forth. And uh, they listened to Motown. I said, oh, this that's fascinating. I got to go over there and talk to these brothers. And this is very American. Listen to this rich Black music. They've been Americanized, Afro-Americanized in terms of their music as a form of transcendence. But they come to murder me. They come to hate black people and Jews and gays and lesbians and even Catholics, even though I had dialogue with David Duke, he is Catholic. So that's upward mobility American style. Ah. Catholic running the Klan now. His founder is anti-Catholic. We anti are. It's a whole new world. Anti-black. So that's part of what's happened. And I did see a black brother who was with him. Right there with the neo-Nazi. But what else happened was he had a conversation. You know, the brother said, you know, can't stand the fact, Brother West, you always call everybody brother. You call Trump brother, and now you're talking to me and call me brother. He said, why? He said, why do you do that? I said, man, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus loves you, man. Jesus died for you just like he died for me. Don't think that I'm special. 
in the eyes of, of God just because I'm opposing you. I said, you had the potential to do exactly the right thing from what I'm understanding. You're choosing to be a gangster. I got gangster inside of me. Depends on which day. Sometimes I choose to be a gangster. You're choosing to be an ideological gangster. You hate you across the board. I said, but the hatred itself does have a context. They feel persecuted. That's part of the replacement theory, right? These are the wasps who look up and see black folk. And they see brown folk. They see Jewish folk. They see Catholic presidents. Oh, what happened to our wasp folk? Well, even when you had wasp, you were still catching hell. Because you got class issues. It's not just a matter of ethnic identification, you see. But it's a matter of the lens through which you view the world are so narrow and so circumscribed by the hatred and the contempt and the hostility. And we actually had a dialogue. It was very interesting because- What did he say when he said brother is about, it's like, Obviously, it is. It's brothers and sisters, what we say in church. And it's and it's a Christian expression of radical equal dignity. That's what it is. How did he respond to that? Because it might have something. When I asked him whether he's, whether he's a Christian, he said, yeah. I said, do you, do you know that Jesus loves you and me? What, what's the problem? Why does it stop just here on the white side? Mine so doesn't say? stop. Mine doesn't <laughs> stop. And he just looked at me. He was just silent. Just, uh, uh, and the guy kind of grabbed him. The guy said really, next to him kind of grabbed him like we got a little Kairos moment here. We don't want to lose a comrade. I mean, what, <laughs> what is going on here? This is it. But I mean, it was just a matter. It was kind of a moment of awakening for a second. And then, then we- You know we, what? Because you found something in common with that person. Mm-hmm. You disagree with a whole bunch, but there was a religious context. Yeah. With the gay rights movement, one of the things we said, I, I was like, well, family, instead of, Let's talk about family because we all come from them. Let's talk about what it's like to be a member of a family. And that will enable them, give them the language to understand better. And so we find instead of just just describing ourselves, creating a narrative in which we are other than the family, which we're somehow, which is is, is a sort of, I think, a, a sort of wounded response to rejection is to say, well, fuck you anyway. I'm happy to be rejected. I reject the family altogether. But that's not a dynamic that can change things. When you come back and you say, well, I'm part of your family too. What do you do with me now? Right. I'm a Christian too. No, that's true. How are you behaving that's this way? Very true. I mean, one of the things that we struggled with the black church way back in the 70s and 80s, when we go and say, look, now Jesus acted up, just like the act up. Didn't say a mumbling word about Hey, the lesbians and so forth. Paul has a different view. Hebrew scripture does. Uh, but also, you all recognize that that brother playing the organ or Audrey Lord or James Baldwin, they are as much constitutive of your life as James Brown or as Aretha Franklin. And they are gay like Stephen Sondheim. Now, the you black have to church would be unimaginable without them, right? The black church would be unimaginable. Exactly. And they're Absolutely. very quiet in those things, but they are running the or they're playing the organ, they're organizing the choirs. They're Absolutely. Right. So you've already relished and revel in their humanity. This is what I meant by the constitutive of who we are. And we haven't got the lengths in Jesus. We haven't even got to, you know, to, uh, so many of the, the great artists who a lot of people don't even think of that's gay or lesbian, Billy Holiday, whatever it is. So that was a way in of your point, trying to connect the yeah. common experience and then say, now look how 
ugly this is spiritually for you not to have compassion, love, sensitivity to the humanity of gay brothers and lesbian sisters and non-binary. But what I also knew is that some of those people, some of the most bigoted people on the surface, were also kind to each other. They, they were able to practice great generosity and charity and That's love. True. And one of the things you go down south sometimes, you're impressed by the, the generosity of churches and the communities around them. So it's if they're not being their best selves here. And we know that they are. So I, but the problem I think now and, uh, is that the divide is really education. It's a college-educated divide if you look at the divides between Democrats. It's more as if we're coming from a wholly different epistemic world uh, in which we've really separated these two groups in terms of educational achievement. And that has its own source of resentment each way, its own source of condescension in one way and jealousy and envy and hatred in the other. That's much harder to get past. It is. It is and and there's, there's structural conditions too, because the education is a crucial element within the larger professional managerial class that too often lives in its own silo. It generates its own forms of arrogance, what I call learned ignorance, its own forms of condescension. And you know, 60 what? 68, 67% of our fellow Americans never go to college. It's only 31, 32% even go to college. And then you got the elite colleges, which is another ranking within the educated class, the chattering classes and so forth. And if you're going to be Augustinian, you've got to shatter pride, arrogance, condescension, haughtiness, wherever you see it. The poor can have their versions. The middle classes can have their versions. The ruling classes can have their versions. But for those who are already feeling marginalized, based on the issues that you talked about, Wealth inequality escalate, right? The sense of being culturally pushed back. You know, when people talk about, let's have a, a group of folk who look like America. Well, you see, usually they don't have in mind German-Americans. Usually they don't have in mind Italian-Americans. You see what I mean? Yes, I want America that looks like America, but it's not just these particular groups. Yeah, I, I love the idea of diversity, which includes white people. I mean, it's, it's, got, it's got to be across the board. Same is true ideologically, politically, religiously, and so forth. But that's just about the truth. If, if, if you're going to tell the truth, you say, well, you don't want a, 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 a group that at the top that looks like America. You want certain groups. They just be honest about it. Then we can have a conversation about it. Mm. But don't lie. And that's part of what the right wing is saying, too. But also, I mean, again, you know, we can't downplay the xenophobia that cuts so deep, don't matter. Because I can see in the eyes of these white neo-Nazi brothers, man, that they, the, the hatred was just intense. But they're not representative of, of, of most of no. I mean, I, we don't want to demonize no, everybody. No, that's, in that, that's, that's, that that's a slice. But with Trump, you know, it spill over into the mainstream in a way we hadn't seen before. You, for me, it's just using this term white supremacist to define basically anybody who voted for Trump is counterproductive. It seems oh, no, but it's not true. It's just not true. Well, if, yeah. if it were true, we'd have to say it. Right. We've got to speak the truth, but it's not true. The it, people it, that it, voted for Trump in the Midwest that made him president voted for Obama twice. <laughs> that's that's simply at least a lot of them did. And we, that's we had some of the folk following my dear Bernie. Right, yeah, right, right, right. No, absolutely, Trump. we did. Yeah, no, absolutely. Much, very much so. 
one last question. So sure. we'll, we'll just, and I, it's going to be very open. If you were to recommend to me or to anybody, anybody here, one writer, one, just one writer, we should go back and reread that, that continually, but I know you have a gazillion of them in your head, but if you were to strip it down and say, just for a moment, sit down and read this person, this woman or this man, and just absorb this stuff quietly. This is what a lot of us need to do. Like we need to get off social media and start actually doing some deeper dives. Who most, which writer maybe most, most resonates for you? The one that you are, when you read that writer, you are home. Oh, one, Anton Chekhov, brother. Nobody like him. Why? He's a poet of catastrophe. He's the poet of compassion. He believes at the core of Russian Orthodox sensibility, absolute condemnation of no one and embrace of everyone's humanity, himself as a grandson of a, of a serf. He has no romanticizing about the peasants the way Tolstoy did. He has no obsession with the bourgeoisie the way Turgenev did. And he's not concerned just with extreme cases on the edge of catastrophe of consciousness collapsing the way Dostoevsky did. He is a comic writer concerned with everyday people. And you read the student, you read in the ravine, you go back to three sisters in the cherry archer, you read the lady with a lap dog. We ought to be living in the age of Chekhov because he provides the deepest conceptions of what it is to be human and who humane. Now he's agnostic. He can go to church and he cries and says, it's the passion, the Eucharist is too beautiful to be true. So <laughs> he feels the love, but he can't accept the conclusion. He's got Christian compassion without the Christian consolation. But his practice, his witness, medical doctor, as well as literary artist, dies at 45, coughing up blood from the age of 27. He's all the way down dramatic, all the way down human. And he is deeper than the blues, brother. He's deeper than the blues. Because even the blues has an American romantic tilt in terms of his look toward tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Chekhov has no tomorrow. No green light like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yes, we believe in the green light. Tomorrow will be better. No, he's Russian. He's not American. But <laughs> the love that you get in him is like the love Supreme and Coltrane's horn. Brother Cornell, that's a wonderful place to end. I want to thank you again for being with me and for sharing your love and your soul and your mind. Uh, but thank you it's so much. always a blessing, my brother. You stay strong. <laughs> God bless your love ones, man. Thank you so much and yours too. God bless yeah. and, and see you soon at some point. All okay. Right, thank you bye -bye. so much, man. Thank you. Be well. Uh -huh.